It's good to see so many here this morning and to see so many uh, new faces. So thank you again for being our guest this morning. We're excited that you're here and, and uh, just pray God's blessings over you. But it's really good to see uh, great attendance on a Sunday where you could be a lot of other places, right? You could be at the river. You could be uh, just enjoying the sun that I'm sure is going to come out later. But thank you for being here and and being our guests. Um, we're seeing more of that. Thankfully, as our country and state specifically opens up more and more, we're seeing people get out more. And that's a good thing because over the last 13 or 14 months, uh, the vast majority of people have been locked down. They've been sitting around, not doing much. They've been living behind a mask. They've been living behind closed doors. I mean, you think about it, thousands upon thousands of kids and teachers over the last school year, that's literally about to finish, have not seen one another's Faces. The same is true of coworkers and family members and even in many churches. In addition to all of the face coverings, we have lived uh, isolated. Uh, we have people all across our country, here in our own area, that have made the decision to not eat in restaurants, not shop in stores, to not go anywhere or be anywhere around people. Uh, some have even went so far as to isolate themselves from friends and family, uh, people that were close to them. They've chosen to not celebrate birthdays, to not celebrate holidays, to not visit grandma and grandpa. And so what has happened over the last 13, 14, 15 months is many people have experienced a level of separation and isolation that is unheard of. It's been a hard, hard year. I, I would say that this experiment has been unnatural and in some cases, even damaging. In fact, I have no doubt that history will, will tell us, history will prove this season to, be ha to have been highly destructive to the relational health and well-being, even capacity of our society. And, and I'm not trying to make a political statement this morning. You may say, this dude is political as can be. He's got the police officers here. He's talking about masks and, and all of that. This guy just wants to get on, on, on YouTube or something. I don't want any of that, nor do I care about being political. Uh, if you listen, you tend here, you know I'm not a political preacher. I, I just want to use this to set up this whole message, and, and really it's the theme of the Bible. We're called to be in relationship because we are a relationship species. So the reason I believe that it's damaging is, is, is many reasons. We're going to see it in the Word of God. But when I see that, I hear that, I'm concerned for people. It's not about politics. It's about concern for the well-being of a person's soul. So this has been damaging because humans are designed to be in relationship. See, we're a communal species. So the physical isolation, even the facial isolation, has scarred us psychologically. It's scarred us sociologically. I think it's going to change the dynamic of the way society relates to one another. And all of this is because there's an innate desire within each of us to both know and to be known by others. We want that. We need that in our lives. We desire to be in relationship with people. We want to talk and to touch. Now, you, if you know me, you know I'm not a hugging person, but I will hug you. In fact, I need to hug at times. I just don't want to hug all the time, right? I, some of you, you just want to drape on someone else. I get that. That's your personality. That's not me, but I still need physical touch. I still need to see faces. I need to be in community with people. Why? Because I'm made that way. We desire to be in relationship with people because God has designed us to be that. I'm going to speak to that in just a moment. So we desire to be in relationship with people, but first and foremost, we desire to be in relationship with God who is our 
creator. The Bible tells us, my favorite verse, Colossians 1.16, gives us this picture that we are made by God and we are made for God. You're not an accident. You were on purpose so that God could be in relationship with you. You know, the Bible talks about, describes this creation in the first couple chapters of Genesis. So right there at the very beginning of the Bible, you see in those first two chapters, chapters how God lays out the creation of humanity, the creation of all that there is. And we learn there that God who dwells in perfect community as Father, Son, and Spirit created all of the universe, created all that there is, and that creation reflects His nature. In other words, it reflects His community, His interrelationships within the Godhead. And so biblically, this is the reason if if you go out in nature and you observe animals of any species, if you go and observe the fish, any species, you observe the the fowl, the, the birds of the air or the bugs that are on the ground, all of that, even the vegetational life, exists in some aspect of community. They all dwell together. They all live together. They all interrelate on some level because they're reflecting the creative aspect of who God is. And humanity is at the apex of all of that. The Bible tells us that God God created man in his own image and according to his likeness. And so the idea there is there is something of the divine within the creation of humanity. We are the top of the food chain, if you will. But it's not about the food chain. It's about relating to God. Humans can do that in a way that no other aspect of creation can. So Adam and Eve, the first two humans, there in Genesis 1 and 2, we see them enjoying community with God, community with one another, and then community together with God. That's there in the first two chapters of Genesis. They also enjoy the blessings of walking with God. It's not just they could talk, but the Lord, it looks like, would come down and spend time with them. Man, what a beautiful picture that would have been. Adam and Eve, as chapter 2 ends, we see them they, that, that, they, that they have entered the covenant bond of marriage. They are without sin and without shame. They are enjoying all that God has created us to enjoy. Now, if you know the Bible story, you know that in Genesis 3, it all fell apart. Genesis 3, you've got Adam and Eve listening to the whispers of the serpent, questioning God's word. Has God really said? They begin to listen to that. They're tempted to do what the Lord told them not to do. They take of that tree, the fruit of that tree, they eat of it, and everything that God warned them about happens. Immediately they die spiritually, later to die physically. You say, how do you know they died spiritually? Because they're in chapter 3, right on the heels of that decision, they immediately know there's something wrong with them. They feel shame. The Bible says that they're naked. They were naked in chapter 2. There was no issue with that. It's not about being in your birthday suit. It's about the picture of shame. And so the Bible tells us, I think in verse 7, that when God comes walking in the garden and calling to them, Adam and Eve are hiding. Adam and Eve have have taken leaves and they've sewn those leaves together to make a covering for themselves. They're trying to cover the shame that they feel for the first time in their lives. But as chapter 3 ends, in spite of all of the ugliness of rebellion, the chapter ends with some very beautiful words. I want you to hear Genesis 3, verse 21. The Bible says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You say, well, that's a strange verse. That's a beautiful verse. 
That verse tells us everything we need to know about who God is. See, in the midst of their rebellion, God is the one who's calling out to them. Adam, Adam, Adam. He's pursuing. He's drawing. He's calling them to himself. He's inquiring about their location. He's wanting to know about their knowledge of their shame. Who told you that you're naked? Who told you they were shamed? Adam, Eve, where are you? He's trying to move them to a place where they will recognize, I'm not where I should be. I should be by the side of God, but I'm hiding. I should not be filled with shame and covered with shame, and yet that's what I feel, because that's what I am, shameful. Gets them to recognize it, and then at the end of the chapter, rather than destroying them like we may think he would do, because they have disobeyed him, they've rebelled against his lordship, we would expect him to wipe the surface clean and to start over. But instead of doing that, yes, he judges, yes, he curses, but he also redeems. He takes an animal, and the very first physical death takes place in all of creation, and it's at the hands of Almighty God. As he kills the animal, I believe it's a lamb, because it's foreshadowing and picturing what God would do himself in God the Son, Jesus, on the cross. And he takes that animal, and he takes the skins from that animal, and he covers Adam and Eve, covering their shame, thus picturing covering their Sin, the animal is slaughtered on their behalf to purchase, to redeem them back to himself. This foreshadows what Jesus would later do on the cross. And so in this picture here, Genesis 3 shows us that God is a God of love, God is a God of mercy, God is a God of grace, and he calls and draws sinful, rebellious people back to himself, and he has made the purchase necessary to redeem. That's in Jesus so all of that background, I've shared with you this morning to set up the understanding that we have for today. This is a special day for us. It's Friend Day. This is a day where we set aside on the calendar to say, as a church, as a people of God, we want to invest in our friends. We want to tell our friends about the greatest thing that's ever been told to us. We want the, our friends to experience the one person that has revolutionized our lives. We want to talk to you about Jesus. We want to tell you about Jesus, what he's done for us, and what he wants to do for you. Because he is God, he created you, he wants to be in relationship with you, and we would love, if that's never to have happened before, to take place in your life. We want you to experience the grace and redemption we've experienced. The Apostle John, here in 1 John chapter 1, explains this desire to know and to be known. And I want to share with you four quick truths this morning. And I promise we'll be out in time for lunch. I didn't tell you what time lunch is. Four truths I want to share with you. First thing I want you to see here is God's design. God's design for your life and for my life is intimacy. It's intimacy. Look what John says here in the first three verses of this letter. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In these three verses, what John is describing 
is a relationship with Jesus. He's using the very same language that he used in the opening verses of his gospel, the gospel of John. There in those early verses, he's talking about Jesus, who is the word of life. He's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Here he's talking about how Jesus manifested. He revealed himself to the disciples. He came and dwelt among his people. Jesus, we see, is the word of life who was in the beginning. And John and the other disciples didn't just hear about this Jesus, didn't just uh, hear a story related about this God who had come. John tells us here that their eyes had seen him, their fingers had touched him, and they had listened to the word speak. What's John mean in all that? Relationship. He's talking about intimacy. Jesus wasn't just an idea. The gospel wasn't just a philosophy. He's not just talking about some sort of doctrine or teaching. No, what John is telling us here is that when Jesus came down, he didn't just come as a good idea. He came as a person. And the disciples and all of those people didn't just hear about, they heard from. They saw, they touched. God wants intimacy with his creation. God wants to be in relationship with all of us. John was in relationship with Jesus. And so this reality is significant because it follows the pattern of creation. Again, when God created the universe and he brought life into it, he did not step away. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That in Genesis 1 and 2, which is uh, two pictures of the same creation... One's got the details of what's happening on day six, that's chapter two, but it's this picture of God creating all that there is, and you might think that he just kind of spun it into existence and stepped out. No, what he did is he spun it into existence and he stepped in. He He remained involved in his creation. Even today, he's involved in his creation. See, the Lord engaged because that was the purpose from the very beginning. He created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness so that they could relate to him. I don't, I, we dare not think that God was in wherever God was, I guess just in himself because he created time and space and then put us there and he, he li- it lives and exists out of it even though he's in it. I'm getting a little philosophical here. Sorry about that. But God was not just sitting around with his feet propped up thinking, man, I'm so bored. I'm going to create some people to have some fun with. That's not why we came into existence. God was in perfect harmony, perfect community, perfect everything as Father, Son, and Spirit, and in His grace and providential wisdom created all that there is. And He's included us in that relationship. It's always been the purpose. And so He creates Adam and Eve. He does so in His image and His likeness. Why is that significant? Again, it's about relationship. Every species of life on some level expresses that relational intimacy, but humanity can express it in a way that's far different, far greater than the rest of creation because of that divine aspect built in to our makeup. So we can relate interpersonally to one another in a way that no other species can. Now, I've said this before, and I've probably offended a lot of you animal lovers, and I'm an animal lover too. My kids are every single day asking for a dog. And then I get online, I'm like, I don't make enough money to get the dog you want. Let's go down and get the mutt. Let's find the guy, that, that, the, the dog that somebody dropped off at an end of a state highway, and we'll take that one. We haven't done that yet. I know your dog is awesome. I know your cat is somewhat awesome. Probably got a demon, but it's a cat. <laughs> you know how I feel about cats. 
you may think your dog's the smartest dog in the world, but it doesn't hold a candle to humans, right? Created to be in relationship with God. That's what we are. Only we can relate to the Lord. Only we can relate to one another. And though all the, the intricacies that all the other aspects of creation fails to compare to. So these verses here point to the reality of God's design. He has a design for our lives. Every aspect of our lives, he has a design for. Perfect design, culminating in intimacy. So when you think about that, he has a design for our families. Uh, that our families would, would work and operate in such a way that, that, that expresses itself in relationship that's holy and righteous to him and in holiness and righteousness to one another. He has a design for our marriages. He has a design for our money. He has a design for our sex life, our work life, and all aspects of life. He has a perfect, wonderful design. And all of that is pointing back to himself to relate to him. This leads us to a second truth. We see here sin's brokenness and what it brings, separation and judgment. John here continues in this letter by explaining his purpose. If we were to keep reading in verse 4 and following, he's going to talk about why he's writing this letter. And he writes and says, hey, I'm writing this so that you can be won over to the gospel. I want you to hear about Jesus. I want you to believe on Jesus. He's holy. You're not holy. He's sinless. You're sinful. He's, Jesus is the light. He's without any element of darkness. And, and you probably know this, but in the Bible, light always depicts holiness. Darkness always depicts evil. So he's making the contrast. Jesus is light. Jesus is holy. You're sinful. You're dark. You need the light. That's the point. He's writing to convey this so that people would believe on Jesus. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, in other words, what John is saying here is you're sinful. You're evil. You're darkness. Jesus is light. And if you say you have no sin, you prove that you are sinful. Because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul would say in Romans 3. Going back to Genesis, we learned there in Genesis 3 how it explains the, the, the trajectory or how sin entered the storyline of humanity. See, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's command there in the garden, they brought God's curse upon themselves, but they also brought it upon every aspect of creation. And that curse on Adam and Eve has been passed down to every generation that has followed. We're all born sinners. The reason we sin is because it's our nature. We are sinners. And sin leaves us broken. Brokenness, if you think about it, it's not too hard to understand. You probably know how brokenness looks. You know how it feels. Brokenness feels like broken relationships, strained relationships. doesn't matter what the relationship is. We understand the brokenness there. Brokenness feels like addiction. Brokenness feels like depression. It feels like discouragement. It feels like guilt and shame. All of the things that we experience all too often in our lives, that's the effect of sin, the brokenness that it brings. And all of these expressions of brokenness stem from the rebellion against God that's present in our own hearts. You say, well, I, I don't know about that. I think that we're, we're good. We're just naturally good people. If you believe that, let's go down to the nursery sit around with some, I don't know, 12 to 18-month-old kids and watch them fight with one another over a toy. They didn't have to be taught that. It comes natural. Y'all parents, you know what I'm saying here, right? 
I got three daughters. They fight worse than cats and dogs at times. They got their mama's nature. <laughs> I can't go on Sunday without taking a dig at her lately. Um, I'll pay for that later. Brokenness comes because of sin. You know, Adam and Eve is a good example of that. They, they, do what, they did what we do today. You see, here's what we do with brokenness. We try to fix ourselves. We'll medicate. We'll numb it with alcohol. We'll try to fill that hole and that void in our life. We'll pack it with money. Man, if I get this job, if I get this promotion, if I can get this prestige, this title, man, my life will be better. I've gotten titles and all that stuff. It never brings the happiness. I was joking with Kara the other day. I was, oh, I was joking with our kids, like telling them, you've got to call me Dr. Dad, because no one calls me doctor. <laughs> Nobody calls me doctor. And I've never pursued that. But if I was pursuing a title... I would be very disappointed and depressed because no one ever refers to me as, as that. And then they shouldn't. It's, it's just a title. Who cares? None of the things that we pursue in this world that we think will give us satisfaction and completion and purpose, none of them will satisfy. You'll always be looking for more. Go win the lottery. I think I saw this morning on the news that somebody won the mega millions, 500 something million. That person, bless them. Man, they got a lot of money. I hope they do something good with it. But they, if they're seeking satisfaction in the money, will be hopeless as soon as they get the check. It's just a fact. So today we are broken. Adam and Eve were broken. They're great examples of how to make brokenness more broken. So as we try to fix ourselves, we just make ourselves more broken. Think about what Adam and Eve did. They ran from God. They tried to fix themselves by covering their shame. And then when confronted about the whole situation, what did they do? They blame someone else. Adam's like, it was a woman you gave me. So he's blaming God, right? It, I wouldn't be in this situation if you gave me something better. That's what he's saying. Well, that was fun to go home that night to Eve. You said what? You know, that sort of thing. Eve's like, uh, it's a serpent. Just blame it. Their marriage is in shambles. You know, we got to read between the lines a little bit here, but if you've been married long enough and, and you know when things like this happen, you begin to play the blame game, you begin to, to, to try to, to whatever that the relational brokenness is, you know Adam and Eve is not in a good place at this point in their relationship. So they just made things more broken. Today we're all broken by the nature of sin. We're separated from a relationship for which we were created. We're under the judgment of our sin. We're condemned by that sin. This is the reality of all of us who don't know Jesus. We're broken. But brokenness has a, a positive side to it. There's a twist there. And on one level or maybe on a various levels, brokenness is not all that bad. Here's what it does. It shows us something's wrong. See, when I see something's broken... If I was to do a sport, I've never broken a bone that I know of, but I remember several years ago trying to act like I was 18 again and trying to dunk a basketball. I planted my foot and I broke a tendon, right? Severed right in half. I, that told me, hey, you need to go to the doctor. You need to get this fixed. You can't even get up and walk. Brokenness shows us and, and tells us something needs to be fixed. It ought to lead us to the Lord. It ought to lead us to the only one who can fix our brokenness. So this is the third truth that I want you to see here from what John has to say. We're going to just label it as Christ's gospel that brings forgiveness and restoration. 1 John chapter 2. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which is obviously everyone, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, the Bible has a word for the change that we all need, and we call it the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel simply means good news. The good news the Bible declares is that God has done for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. That he has made a way. A way where there's no other way. Going back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are broken. Their relationship is severed with God. They're running, they're hiding, they're, they're trying to fix themselves. They're creating more brokenness. It's breaking their marriage. They didn't have kids, but if they'd had kids at the time, that would have been a mess, and it later was. And yet God pursues them, calls them to himself, and provides forgiveness and restoration pictured in Genesis 3.21 of the killing of that animal and the covering of their shame. God the Father later would send God the Son, Jesus, to die on a cross. God in human form, perfect and holy, living a perfect life, keeping all of God's commandments, doing what Adam could not do, doing what Abraham never did, doing what Moses was unable to do, doing what every human, including you and I, could not and would not do, Jesus did, so that he was perfect, holy, and acceptable. And so John uses a big word here, or it's translated in our vernacular as a big word that we don't throw around. Any of you guys said propitiation in the last week or two? No, you're not throwing that word around. You probably don't even really understand what that means. Propitiation simply means this, a worthy sacrifice, an offering suitable to turn back the wrath of God the Father against your sin. That's what propitiation is. Jesus is the one, the only one, who is acceptable, who can lay his life down and say, don't condemn them, condemn me. He's the substitute. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And through what Jesus did for us, ultimately, we can experience forgiveness and restoration. Jesus did all of this so that far from God people can experience God's design for their lives. We see, again, an example of this there in Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve playing the blame game. Marriage is on the rocks, but God heals that. See, God forgives, God restores. You say, how does he restore the marriage that's on the rocks? If you go there at the end of that chapter, even on into Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us that Adam knew his wife and they had children. You married folks, promises is G-rated. You married folks, you don't, golly, this is dangerous territory. You don't have kids if you're at odds with one another. You sleep in opposite rooms right? I'm not going to ask if you've been sent to the other room or whatever. But when you're at odds with one another, you don't come together on any element, any level of intimacy. And yet Adam and Eve, because God had touched their lives in such a way, they were able, because vertical relationship was right, now could have horizontal relationships right too. And they came together. They raised a family. Was there effects because of sin? Absolutely. The curse was there, but the gospel was there as well. God perpetuated a people of faith because he reached out and touched Adam and Eve's life. And today he can perpetuate a people of faith in your family line by touching your life so that you can use the gospel and preach the gospel and live the gospel to change generations in your family tree as well. 
The gospel is good news. And in order to experience the solution that God has given us for our brokenness, the gospel, we must repent and believe the gospel. See, the change we really need comes only from Jesus. And when we repent, when we turn from our sins, we turn from ourselves, we're turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This morning, the four teenagers that just, got, just were baptized, they were not giving their lives to Jesus and being, quote-unquote, saved as being put in the water. That was an expression, as, as Nate explained. That's an expression of what has already happened. They're just telling the world, I'm with Jesus unashamedly following him the rest of my day. They've been brought from death to life, if you know the language of the New Testament. So when we believe his sacrifice and that his resurrection are sufficient, then we come into this relationship. There's a fourth thing, though. And I thought about not putting this in here, but I'm an expositor, and, and I think you've got to do justice to the text. And, and, and there's another reason, and I'll probably explain that in just a moment. But look with me. In verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. He's already said liar, right? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Now he's saying, hey, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't do what he says, you're a liar. And it equates the two that you're lost. And the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The Bible makes it very clear that salvation is free. The Bible says it's available to all. It's not a, a gospel that's for a select few. It's not for the Jews only. It's for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's not for white people. It's not for black people. It's not for brown people. Whatever people we want to identify with. The gospel is for all people in all times and in all places. But there's only one way to come. It's through faith. It's through repentance. And then as Jesus changes your life, you express that faith and the reality of being in relationship with Jesus by walking with Jesus. Going back, again, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve used to walk with God. They rebel and eat the fruit. Now they're not walking with God. Jesus, well, Jesus, because that's the picture. Let's just go there. God restores the relationship by providing the forgiveness and salvation. Now they're walking with God again, right? That's the picture God wants for all of us. So the way you can know that your life has been changed is by the evidence of a changed life. You don't know you're a Christian because your name is on the roll of the church that you attend. You don't know you're a Christian because I was baptized on X date. You don't know you're a Christian because, well, my grandma, she loves the Lord, and, and, and I'm kind of just riding her coat, tra coat train, coat train, coattail. You know what I meant. <laughs> what do you not see in the Bible ever? Spiritual grandchildren. God has no spiritual grandchildren. He only has children. You never see that, that Moses was God's child and, and Moses had a child, so that's God's grandchild and, and then great-grand... None of that. No, it's, he has children. Every generation has to make a decision to faith into Jesus for themselves. My children have to come to that point in their life. They're not going to get into heaven because showing up there and let's just say 
the Apostle Peter, because we like to use his name when we talk about this, and he's at the gates, which probably won't be the way it is, but let's just say it is. They get up to the gates of heaven and like flashing the badge, my dad's the pastor of Red Lane, I've got credentials to come through here. That's not the way it works. Some of my children, especially the youngest one, thinks that she can get whatever she wants around here because her dad runs things. <laughs> and then we have to like, well, we're not going to talk that way, shh, shh, you know, do whatever we got to do there. That's a love pat, by the way. You know you're in relationship with Jesus because he changes your want-tos. I don't want to do certain things that I used to do. I want to do things that please Jesus. And that's not out of religion. That's not out of ritual. That's not out of I have to. It's out of I want to. Man, I don't want to walk and do the things that used to displease the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not, again, talking about spiritual uh, rituals or keeping a list of rules. Jesus never had a good thing to say about the Pharisees, if you read the Gospels, because that's all they were about. He was about relationship. He was about transforming a person's life. He's about seeing that take place and, and ongoing development in a person's life. Today, there are many people in church or with a church background who think that they're Christians. They think that because they attend church or know the language, you speak the language of church, uh, they think this because they made a dis spiritual decision at some point in their life. Maybe they're baptized, uh, they're members. All of that doesn't mean anything if there's been no transformation in your life. Think about this. If you have no love for God's word, if you have no love for prayer, if you have no love for being with God's people, if you have no love for serving others in the name of Jesus, if you have no love for sharing the, uh, the gospel about the one person who supposedly has changed your life, can you really say that you're a follower of Jesus? I am, if you attend here, you know I am a diehard University of Arkansas Razorback fan. I grew up in Northwest Arkansas. I went to the University of Arkansas. My Razorbacks are number one in the nation and have been for two or three months in baseball. I mean, we're just awesome. Say that unashamedly. We're just awesome. And uh, I don't have a problem talking about the Razorbacks. Obviously, I will talk right now in a sermon about them. Why? Because I have a relationship with that school. I'm still paying them, I guess, after all these years paying the government who paid them 20 years ago. Man, if I'm in relationship with Jesus and he's my Lord and Savior, I also have a passion, very similar, hopefully greater than that, to share it with others. So John here would caution those who show no evidence of faith to take a spiritual assessment of themselves. He would caution them to not trust in a past decision, any sort of religious experience, uh, to not uh, trust in spiritual pedigrees for sure. And instead, if they love God, that would, that's evidence that there's a relationship there. If there's a strong desire to obey his commandments, that's evidence that there's a relationship there. Spiritual assessments are good. The proof of our salvation is found in obedience. Does that mean you're going to be sinless? Again, if you spend time with me, our staff, our elders, our small group leaders, anybody, if you go spend time with yourself as a professing follower of Jesus, you will learn you're not sinless. And if you think you are, John says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. you you're you're going to mess up. But there's always forgiveness. There's always restoration because the relationship's there, right? We don't have time to talk about all the details for that, but we're not perfect yet. But there's coming a day that that will happen for all of us who know Jesus. So know and to be known. That's the desire of our hearts. 
That's the innate draw within us that we have toward relationships. We need them. We want them. That's why this past year has been so difficult. I can't tell you the number of times that um, I'm trying to have a conversation with a person and we're, you know, we're both wearing the garb and you can't understand. It's just frustrating. You're like, what's all this about? And you just kind of walk. I mean, I want to see someone's face. Why? Because I have a desire for that. I want a desire to be in relationship. But ultimately, that desire is for the Lord. This morning, we're just going to sing a simple song. I know it's friend day. No pressure on anybody. But if the word of God and what I've shared this morning has been used to speak into your life on any level, we would ask that you would respond. We do open response times here. I would encourage that. Deeply encourage that. We have people that we can send you back to the back, and it's not a, it's not a dungeon or anything like this. There's some rooms, and we'll just take the Bible, and we'll answer questions that you may have, and just share the gospel a little bit more fully, a little bit more intimately with you, and walk with you in the decision that you sense the Lord leading you to make. Right? That's all we would ask of you this morning. Perhaps, though, if you choose not to do that, I would encourage you not to leave here without making some sort of public decision. Man, get on your phone, which I, I would guess 95% of us, if not more, have a smartphone. Get on our Facebook page or send us an email. Just say, hey, in, in the sermon today, I felt like the Lord was wanting me to make a decision. Could you help me with that? That's all you got to do. Just info at redlanebaptist.org. You can go on our Facebook page and send us a direct message. Those online can do that as well. We want to hear from you. And if God is moving in your heart, as Ricky comes and we sing this last song, you respond in faith.